Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with John Barry this week. Now, this is a really cool conversation because we talk a lot about ethical investing and what that actually means. But we also go back into John's childhood, his early adulthood, and what were the factors that led him to do what he does today. As well as all that, we dive into an important rabbit hole, which is talking about mental health, and in particular for men, and the importance of checking up on each other. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure you will too. If you do, then there's more than 180 in the back catalog, so you might want to check out some of those as well. The aim here is to build up a whole bunch of stories of people who are doing some really cool stuff in the world. And you can find more at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into the conversation with John. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome John Barry, who's the co-founder and CEO of Pathfinder Asset Management. Thanks so much for joining me. Look, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm super excited about being here. Well, that's the right attitude. I like that. <laughs> um, we're recording this on a Friday, so I think we're both feeling maybe the weekend is coming, and you know, um, which is always a good frame of mind to be in. Um, so what we do on the podcast is we talk about people's journeys. And what I'd love to do is unpack where people are from, what's been the influences in their lives, and then how that has shaped them into whatever they're doing today. So in your case, I would love to find out about Pathfinder and what you're actually doing, but I also would love to know this backstory, you know? <laughs> um, so could we go back in time and could you tell us a little bit about where you're from and particularly your childhood, like think of age five or six. What was that like for you? Okay. Um, look, winding the clock back a few decades, um, my first 10 years of my life were, um, I grew up in Wellington and I've got really happy memories. It was, I had a very happy and stable and secure um, upbringing with my mum um, and dad and my brother um, in Wellington. And I think, look, I was really blessed because um, next door to us was my grandmother and I've got really good memories of every day after school going over and, and chatting with her and we'd spend a lot of time chatting together and, and I was probably a very shy kid um, when I was younger. I had plenty of friends but I, I was shy and I just enjoyed being one-on-one -on -one with people and I think I learned a lot um, from hanging out with grandma and, and chatting with her. Um, but, and then growing up through your childhood, was it all the time there in Wellington or...? Um, no, so we left we left Wellington when I was about ten, and it's interesting your different perspective as you grow older. Because of you know my memory of Wellington is just these beautiful blue sky days where I was playing with um, playing outside. Um, unfortunately, not every time I go to Wellington is it those beautiful blue skies anymore. But um, I also remember you know my primary school in Wellington. I remember it's this massive school, um, and I've taken my kids back there since, and they're looking at me going, "Dad, this is tiny." And you look at it through the eyes of an adult, and it's tiny. But through mm. my memories as a child, it was um, it was enormous. But yeah, that, look, that was the first ten years, and then we moved um, we moved up to Auckland as a as a family. Right. So, what do you remember that moving? Like being ten, you're old enough to kind of have a memory that you're going somewhere new. How was that for you? Mm. 
Um, look, for me, to be honest, it was it was tough. I was a shy kid, um, moving to a new city, new school, make, breaking into new circles of friends. Um, I found that hard, leaving behind the, um, the comfort and, and stability of, of Wellington. Um, so it did take me a while to adjust, and you've got all the angst of being a teenager and, and all the rest of it. And I, I suppose the thing that was interesting for me was I was a very shy kid, but I was actually drawn towards debating and, and found I was reasonably good at that. And so, um, you know, that was one area where I didn't like being the centre of attention, but that was one area where I was very comfortable. Um, I was very comfortable in front of people. And I, I think that taught me some great life skills. So it mm. was one area I was focused on. What, what was it that drew you to that, did, that debating side of things? Which part of it did you enjoy? Um, look, I really enjoyed words. I love words and I love language and it's probably, I mean, it's hard to sort of trace how I ended up there, but um, look, I'm, I'm very close to my brother and I was very close when we are growing up and I'm very close to him now and he's very, very smart. I mean, he's incredibly smart. And um, when we were growing up, I don't remember, remember, but before NCA there was school certificate and in the school certificate he sat five exams. Um, my brother was top in New Zealand in two of five subjects that he sat. Um, extraordinary. And half of me was saying, Dave, I'm so proud of you. And the other half of me is saying, did you really have to do that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> Were you younger or older? I was younger. I was younger. Yeah. Um, but that, that was... Pretty big shoes to fill. <laughs> yeah, look, I was a couple of years behind him. And I suppose that the good thing that came out of that was it made me think about where, what, where am I going? And what, what am I good at? And what do I want to do? And, and he, David, is, is fantastic at um, numbers and, and technical ability. Mm. Um, and look, I run a fund management business, so I'm okay with numbers. But, um, you know, I love words. I love words. And so that led me down sort of the English history, economics type right. path, and, and debating was sort of wrapped up in that. Yeah. Um, and know. the words aspect, like, when, so you always enjoyed reading? Was that just a big part of your childhood as well? Or? Yeah, look, I'm... I'm I'm a bit of I'm I'm not a great reader in the sense that I have a number of books going on at one time and I often won't finish um, won't finish any of them. But um, I enjoy words and I enjoy the origin of words and, and different language. And you'll find like in the diaries I keep at the back, there are lists of words. I find words interesting, um, and I'll go and look up what are the origin is of it. Or um, you know, and the name the name of our business, for example, Pathfinder, was one of the words I've written down. I enjoy the different meanings that you can play with. Right. That. And what, this is just curious to me, but what, what expression does that take then? Like, are you reading a magazine and you'll see a word and think, I got to write that one down or, or you, you're on, your eyes are open looking or? Um, yeah, it's, it's not like I'm searching for words, but you know, like recent ones I've written down have been kerfuffle and furlough and they're just funny sounding words. And then I'll go and look up the, um, the origin or, or history of them. Um, yeah, so people collect stamps, collect coins, um, maybe I collect words. You collect words, how interesting, yeah. I actually, I love um, sometimes reading old, old books like Charles Dickens, you know, like 100 and something years ago, because the terminology, yeah. you can kind of understand what they're meaning the way they use a word, but they use it in a completely different context. And Yeah, and, and you try to make sense of it. Yeah. yeah, and I think our language is actually less rich than it used to be. Because yeah. you read some of the words and you just think, wow, they're such a great description with that word. <laughs> yeah. So, so debating, I, I can kind of see where we're headed here with words and debating in terms of what you ended up studying. In high school, did you have a career or something that you knew you wanted to do? Or, or yeah. Um, 
Yes and no. Like I, I had a general interest in business and finance, mm-hmm. um, and I, I was probably unusual in that. Um, the, I made my first investment at 14 years old. Okay. I bought 100, 100 shares in a company called Goodman. It cost me $165, and um, you know now it's easy to do something like that. There's platforms you can invest in shares, but it was actually quite tough and expensive thing to do it as a 14 year old. Um, but I started investing then and was, I was fascinated by markets um, and business generally. Um, and I had, I was, you know, through that period, through my teen years, I was very close to my uncle, um, Mike. And, you know, I, I talked about my grandma back in Wellington. You know, one day I turned up, I was probably seven or eight years old, and I turned up at, at grandma's place and there was this guy sitting there with long hair, his jeans had patches all over them and he was playing the guitar. And grandma said, this is your uncle, Mike. And he'd come back from London, and, and I didn't even know he existed. Wow. And I was fascinated by this guy. And he, um, and you know, I was very, very lucky to have him through my ten years as a mentor, as um, you know, slightly different generation to my parents, someone I could really relate to. But he was um, into computers. He got you know changed from hippie to businessman into computers, and very, very successful. And and I think you know he really nurtured in me the interest in, in business and finance. Ah, huh, that's interesting. So he had what he had, he had left and gone to the UK and just been there a long time, and therefore you'd never had the connection. I never knew it existed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he turned up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing. Oh. So you get to the end of high school. Um, yeah, what happened next? What did you study? Or um, so what happened next? I was still didn't know where I wanted to go, so I kept, I was keeping options open. Did a commerce and law degree. Um, and that just essentially gave me some time to um, to think about and buy time for um, sorting out what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. which, which turned out to be law. So, um, you know, started at a law firm in Auckland and was there for three and a half years, and I was really happy. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. I was really well looked after. Yeah. Um, it was an exciting time, and, and you know, law... For me, it teaches you how to think, you know, and, and teaches you a whole framework for solving problems, um, and I, I suppose the most interesting day of, of working, when I think about it, was my first day. And the partner I was working for, um, he just gave me a big stack of paper. He said, if you can go and photocopy this, it would take you a couple of hours, but that'd be great. And I was, inside my head, I was thinking, I've just spent five years studying, and you're making me photocopy? And I oh, smiled and said, yeah, I'll do it. And, right. and it was kind of a test he gave everyone was, you know, what's your attitude? Are you, you know, you've got to realize when you come out of university, you've actually got no life skills or practical experience. Right. You start at the bottom and you work your way up, and I think it was uh, it was a good lesson. Yeah, that's interesting. I've interviewed quite a few lawyers and people involved in the law because, as you know, I'm a lawyer, so I guess I have my own niche little interest. And one of the people was Ursula Cheer, so she's the dean of Canterbury Law School now, and she was saying the same thing that because um, I was kind of saying I don't remember the cases that I studied, but I d- did learn a logical way of thinking. And, you know, a way of presenting things that, and that's what you take, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great way of um, learning to solve problems, learning to argue both sides of a case, you know, you're, um, and you can apply that not just, it's not just in a litigation situation, it's, it's, you know, commercial business, it's a really valuable skill to structure around problems, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So um, were you, that debating side of things, does that mean you were getting into litigation or were you a different area or? No, look, I, was, I was commercial and banking um, yeah. and, and um, no interest in the litigation or court appearances, to be honest, that wasn't really my thing. But the, um, you know, the documentation skills, the, the complexity of structured transactions, I really enjoyed. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. And so what happened next? Did you stay with that? Yeah. Um, no, oh, look, I decided it was time to travel. So um, with a few friends, we, we hatched a genius plan to, um, to drive a Toyota Hiace from London to Kathmandu. Um, so this, this was back in the early 90s. Um, and we, we never got there, surprisingly. We got, um, so we spent about seven months um, traveling. And so we went down to Syria and Jordan. We spent a lot of time down there. And that was, that, frankly, that was amazing. Um, so I'd done some backpacking before in South America and Asia. And, and I'd worked in the, in the States um, um, with a holiday job. But nothing had prepared me for driving into um, Syria. And we arrived in our van um, in northern Syria, just outside of Aleppo. And we parked in a field and we were just inside this Toyota Hiace preparing our dinner and suddenly we looked up and there were people all around us and they weren't smiling and they were staring at us and we didn't know what to make of it, whether we were in a good situation or bad situation, but we hopped out and, and tried to communicate with them and our, with our limited language skills um, and they were friendly and they invited us back and we, we spent some time in this village and the first night we were there, we sat in, a, sat in circles and so we were in the inner circle um, with the senior elders of the village and then there'd be circles of males outside that and and women were either standing around the outside of the room or serving food to us except for one um, for one woman her name was Rena um, and she could speak English she was the only person in the village who could speak English and she was quite open with us saying I would never be in the inner circle in any circumstance except I can speak to you and I can translate for you so we um, we had the most fascinating times um, with these people and, and learning about their their culture but she also said to me I would love to learn more about the West and I can't talk to you in front of my family. Can we meet somewhere? So we arranged to meet in the Citadel in Aleppo and Aleppo is an amazing city. And, and honestly, it's just tragic to see on the news, you know, the um, devastation that's happened there because it was um, a wonderful city and the, just with the cars and the people and the, and, and, and the city is a Citadel and we arranged to meet there and we sat, sat down and were talking. And her first question to me was, is it true that in the West you can choose who you marry? And I was like, wow, yeah, yeah, it is. And the second question was, is it true you can have a partner before you marry your partner? And it was this line of questioning and, and nothing had prepared me for this completely different different culture. Um, wow. And, you know, I, I just found that fascinating that, um, you know, I'd had an upbringing in Catholic schools and and, and quite structured and, and um and disciplined and, and hadn't seen, even when I traveled through America or Asia, I hadn't been close enough to the cultures to really understand the differences. And I think this is the first time I really understood um, a completely different culture. And I found it really, it was interesting. It was interesting. So we, we'd spent um, a lot of time down right through Syria, right through Jordan, um, this sort of pre-internet, pre-smartphone. Um, we didn't actually expect to be there, so we had no maps. Um, right. All we had was a handheld compass, and we navigated our way around the um, the Middle East, um, including going up the Gaza, you know, through the Gaza Strip, um, which you probably wouldn't choose to do today. But um, you know, we, we drove all around there. We couldn't get through Libya, um, so we had to find another route back to um, back to London. So, essentially, after um, probably seven months travelling, I was completely broke. Um, <laughs> And and needed to needed to get myself back into the um, back into the workforce, back into the real world. Yeah. Um, so initially, like training that seven months um, that you spent. Like, how do you think it's impacted your views of the world since then? Um, look, for me personally, I, I think that was a 
period of um, massive change for me personally. And, and you know, I encourage people to um, take time out and go traveling. Um, it was, for me, it was a wonderful experience to, um, you know, the, the independence, the learning about different people, different cultures, the self-responsibility, the, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a fantastic time of growing and I'd write a lot, um, you know, I kept a lot of diaries and, and um, so look, I, um, I was prepared to do anything because I was completely broke. So I start, I got a job at um, Citibank in the trade finance department. I was the head of the photocopying department. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm good. I'm good at operating photocopies and fax machines. Yeah, you had experience. Um, with the first one. <laughs> so look, I did that for a while, but the good thing about it was I was quite efficient at the job. I managed to free up a couple of hours a day to, um, to apply for, different jobs um, in law firms. And I saw a job advertised in one of the large firms for a securitization lawyer. And I had no idea what that meant, but it was just quite a cool word. So um, I applied for it and got an interview. And the, of course, I kind of fell down at the first hurdle when they said, well, tell us, John, all you know about securitization, which was approximately nothing. I couldn't even define it. Um, but they, they chatted to me for an hour. And at the end, they offered me the job, which was... Um, quite remarkable and I sort of asked them why did you hire me when everyone else you're interviewing knows what securitization is and they and they said it, it's um just because everyone else doesn't have a, a good attitude you know the um everyone else was technical and and they wanted someone on the team who would be keen to learn and enthusiastic and um sure you know nothing about it but you can learn it and that's mm. um and then you know I worked there for a couple of years and that was sort of the best of times and the worst of times because the best of times because the work was incredible um I worked with um, housing associations. I did the first securitization of housing social association rentals in the UK and in Sweden. Um, you know, the work was amazing. The hours were just brutal. Um, you know, you've worked in London, you probably know what it's like. It's, um, I could go for weeks on end without having a single day off. I could go for weeks of having at least one, if not two, um, nights where I worked 24 hours. Um, it was it was really, really hard going. Um, yeah. Yeah. But also exciting. And, and it got to a point when I realised um, when one of the partners described Kiwi lawyers as cannon fodder, who you send into the front line and you work them into the ground, um, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, th this is not long-term what I want to be doing and, and talk to the partners. And they very kindly sent me on secondment to one of the clients, mm -hmm. um, which then opened up, which was an investment bank, um, which then opened up a whole new series of opportunities for me. Right. It's interesting. I just want to pick up on one thing, which was the, the point you're making there is about the attitude of the worker or the attitude of the person that you can have all the technical knowledge and things, but ultimately it's often about teams and working together and getting on with others. And yeah. I think it's just, this is really just to highlight it for the listeners that it, particularly those who are new graduates, if you can come into a situation with the right attitude and be the best photocopier there ever was, <laughs> then you're going to, you're going to go far, you know? Um, whereas if you come in with the arrogant attitude or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more qualified than what you're having me do. It's, you know, probably not going to work out the same as it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I agree. I, particularly if you're, if you're talking to younger people, you know, what, what's my advice on, um, um, for getting jobs is just show willingness to learn and show yeah. willingness to, to to get excited about um, new opportunities. Yeah, that's good. And so um, you mentioned that the, the partner was talking about Kiwis as cannon fodder. Did you kind of feel a sense of identity, like a Kiwi identity? Was that heightened by being away from New Zealand or or not? Um, yes. Um, 
so I suppose the, the Kiwi lawyers were seen as different to, to other lawyers in the sense that um, when you're a New Zealand lawyer, you tend to have broader experience than the lawyers, English lawyers tend to be much more specialised. And, and they, they talk about Kiwi lawyers, you know, you're, you're different and you're known as hard workers and enthusiastic and you do whatever it takes to, um, to get the job done, but apparently cannon fodder as well. <laughs> Yeah, and those those things like I sympathize because I was in London just a little bit after that, and um, yeah, I, I remember the hours and oftentimes working till nine or ten or eleven, or sometimes the the law firm I was in they had an apartment down below where you could spend the night if you were working, you know, till three a.m. and you needed a couple hours before the IPO in a couple of days time. So it, it can be. I think you do come to that point of saying, well, is this really what I want from my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And look, I had one, um, I think it really hit me when I'd, I'd done a 24-hour stint, so I probably finished at eight in the morning, which was not unusual for me to work all night. Went home, showered, had some breakfast, changed, came back in the office. I was probably back in by 10.30, so I had no sleep in over 24 hours. Yeah. And one of the partners was standing there and said, he looked, at, he looked at his watch, looked at me and said, Barry, you're a lightweight. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I think at that point I realised, like, there's a lack of appreciation here. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so, uh, so what happened next? You, you were seconded, which means you're working within the client. And, and what did that yeah. open up for you in terms of different perspective and opportunity? So that, that, um, that put me from being an advisor to being part of the team that's making the deals. And that was really exciting, part of the decision-making process. And they, um, they offered me a full-time role, which I took. Um, and it, it was incredibly exciting there. You know, by the time I left, I was managing a small team across um, London, Frankfurt, and New York. Um, but I just did, you know, incredible work, amazing transactions right through Europe, through, you know, Madrid, Paris, Amsterdam, Luxembourg, Budapest, um, even down Tel Aviv, did a couple of deals, um, Cayman Islands. You know, it was, it was exciting stuff, and we were yeah. all over the place. Um, and I was learning a lot and working with really smart, really talented, um, super talented, talented people. The, the challenge I suppose I had, um, and I, I kind of learned this at the law firm I was working beforehand, is I've got perfectionist tendencies. I like things to be um, exact. Mm -hmm. And that is both a gift and a, um, it's both a gift and, and I suppose you'd say a curse in the sense that, um, you know, why did I work all night at the law firm? It was getting things right. I wanted things to be perfect. I knew if I changed thing in one, something in one document and you've got five folders of documents, I knew where the other knock-on changes were. I'd go and make those changes and make it perfect. And, um, and I, I suppose where that led me over time, as well as doing this fantastic work, was putting myself under a lot of stress. And mm. after a period, I started feeling exhausted um quite exhausted you know my wife encouraged me um my wife encouraged me to go and, and see a doctor and and it's the first time i went to a doctor and had a chat and had a checkup and and told him what i thought was going on um which was essentially um you know both mental stress but manifesting itself in physical ways as well so you know you can get sweaty palms you can you when you're under a lot of stress your chest can be really tight and you can find it hard to, to breathe um your head can get you know spin a little bit or you know so i was getting some of those symptoms and I, I talked to the doctor and the doctor said look um you know you've got young kids so i had two awesome young, young kids you're probably really tired just gonna get a good night's sleep and you'll be fine i was thinking well, that's kind of odd advice but anyway and then carried on down that pathway 
Um, and then we went to a second doctor and, and told the same thing. And, and this doctor said, yep, I know where you're coming from. Let's book an appointment for six months away and we'll see how you are in six months. Mm. And I found that um, to be unhelpful. I was thinking, Gee, this is just, I need help. You know, I need, um, um, I'm not exercising enough and, and I'm getting stressed, stressed about things. Um, and then work had a helpline where you could call confidentially for um, for help. And I, I phoned and spoke to a lady there and, and she said, okay, what I want you to do um, when you're feeling stressed like this and when you're, you're not feeling you're coping as well as you want to cope, um, put a rubber band on your wrist and, and pull it out and then let it go and it'll go ping, it'll really hurt you and it'll bring you back to reality. And I said, I don't think that's going to help. I think I'm, I'm way past that point of just wearing a rubber band and hoping that's going to help me. And, and she said, we can't help you. You're, you know, we can't do anything for you. I'm sorry. Um, and I found that quite devastating in the sense that I consciously, as a guy, it's quite hard for guys to talk about, um, you know, mental health and stress and, and um, to go and, and seek help and be told, actually, we can't help you is, um, is like, oh, my God, where can I turn to? And sort of in the work context, you know, my work colleagues would never have guessed that I was under, under stress or, or feeling, feeling this way because the work was, you know, I was producing good work and I, my team was great, but it was um, inside, it was in some ways eating me up. Um, I was finding it quite, quite stressful. And I suppose it came to a, it came to a head, um, came to a head where I, I worked with several teams and um, one of the teams, the Italian guys, awesome guys, um, but a little bit chaotic sometimes in their deal management. And so we've been working on a deal in Milan and um, on the day we were signing, I had it all organized. And one of the guys came over and said, look, bit of a change. We're just gonna need to tweak things around a little bit. Uh, we've agreed with the client to do this, this and this. And it was essentially changing the entire deal. And normally I'd say, I have no issue with that. I, I, can, I can do that. And this time I just knew I couldn't. And not only that, I just had a sense of, I can't deal with this. You know, I can't, I can't deal with this. And, and Everything started going black and my head started spinning and I actually blacked out. I blacked out in the office. And that for me was the point of like, um, it's time to change. Yeah. It's time to make a change. And that was, um, um, you know, so Ange and I and our kids decided to come back to New Zealand and, um, and start fresh air and, and, you know, it's been great. It's been great for us. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much for your honesty and talking about that because I think, particularly for men, it's not talked about enough. Yeah. So I'm just really keen to, because what you're talking about really is there's some warning signs that yeah. before the thing that happened. Um, can you just talk us through, because there, there are people listening, I'm sure, who are in similar contexts or in similar situations. Is there any way that you can travel back in time and tell us what you wish that somebody had done for you you know, a month before that blackout or, or what yeah. was, what, are, what are some ways that we as responsible people can help our colleagues, help our friends who seem like everything's fine, but actually they're at the edge. Yeah. And thank you for drilling down on that. Cause that's, um, you know, it is important to me that rather, I could just tell you about my career and the great deals I did in Sydney, but actually it's much, sorry, in London, but it's actually much more interesting to, to talk about um, this issue. Cause like you say, you know, particularly men, women are much better at being open and talking with their friends and their colleagues and their family, but men are not. Mm. Um, and I've actually, since I've been back in New Zealand, you know, men's mental and physical health is important to me. And, I, and I'm on the board, I've been on the board of the Men's Health Trust in New Zealand for about six years. And one of our taglines that we like to use is men start talking. And it's this idea of, um, 
you know, you've got a responsibility as an individual. If you're under stress, like be honest about it. And if someone says, how are you? Um, you know, like I've got a mate who's always top of the world and I, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. And I spoke to him once and I said, how are you? And he said, I'm okay. And that's like a signal that you've got to pick up on. So I said, let's go for coffee and we talk. And, and you know, he wanted to talk. He needed to talk, but he didn't know how to say to someone, I need to talk. Um, and so this idea of men start talking is kind of a two-way thing. It's if you're in a position of um, where you need to talk to someone, break that barrier down and find a way to do it. Break that barrier down and find a way to open up to someone. Um, and, and I didn't do that. And that's what we need to learn to do as guys. But the other side of it is the responsibility as well. If you really are a friend or a good work colleague is start that conversation with other people, ask them how they are and look at the signals of, um, you know, is their response trying to subtly tell you something? Um, Cause I've had that conversation with, with plenty of guys where I'm okay telling them, my story, this is the first time I've told it publicly, but I'm okay. I've been okay talking one-on-one -on -one with guys and saying, this is what happened to me. I think you're going through something similar. Do you want to talk about it? Mm. And guys do want to talk about it. They just don't know how to start the conversation. Yeah. Well, that's why, that's why I thank you for sharing it because I think if, if more of us talk about these things, then it's more acceptable. And the yep. reality is that we all go through times in our lives where there's pressures work family, you know there's different types of stress isn't there but um what you're describing is something that if if you've got the ears to listen you can actually pick up on those signals from other people and and i think that's a big part of it we use the we use the phrase how are you as a greeting rather than an actual i actually want to know which comes back as a responsibility on each of us to ask the question in a genuine way and actually want to know how they're doing in a holistic way rather than a, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy, you know? Yeah. And look, it's hard for guys because we haven't been conditioned that way. Um, or we haven't had practice in, in communicating at that, at that level. And we need to learn um, and we need to do better for our kids, right? For our kids to, um, um, which I think the next generation is um, much better at, at communicating and being more open about the way they feel. Yeah, I agree. So can you just give us a little hint in terms of the group that you said that you were involved in for the last six years? Because there might be some um, resources or information that people could find if this part of the conversation is of interest to them. Yeah, cool. So um, Men's Health Trust. Um, so easy to find our website and we have a ton of resources on there on everything from mental health to prostate cancer to um, getting a doctor checkup, you know, and a doctor checkup is um, one of the biggest things we encourage is just get in a habit of doing that every year. Mm -hmm. This month, um, June, is um, Men's Health Month, and we've been running a campaign this month of um, six, uh, 30 Days of 60, which is essentially um, for the 30 days of June, spend 60 seconds on yourself. And so maybe people listening to this can do it in July, but since spend 60 seconds, which is no time at all, sending a text to a mate or calling a mate or putting your running shoes on or just practicing your breathing, um, whatever it is, just spend 60 seconds on yourself for an entire month um, and, try and, and try and bring some change. Because that, look, that's, you know, when you talk about what could I have done differently in London when I was under stress, it was actually look after myself better. And, and that, you know, you've just got to, you've just got to be conscious of um, how you eat, how you exercise and how you communicate with people and getting balance. Yeah, no, I agree completely. It's so important though to, to have these conversations because too often, uh, particularly in our media and for better or worse, some of our examples, it's more about 
being strong and and not allowing vulnerability to show through. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's really good. Thank you. So we're now here in New Zealand. It'd be great to find out, you know, that when did you come back and um, what was that transition like for you? And then bring us up to speed because I'd love to know more about what you're doing today. So, um, yeah, can you just kind of bring us up now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came back um, 2004. So it's been, it's been a while. And look, I, I was very blessed. When I came back, the investment bank I worked for, they found a job for me in Sydney three days a week. And so um, probably wasn't very good for my carbon footprint, but for a few years I was flying to Sydney on a Tuesday morning and I'd come back on a Thursday night. Right. Um, and that, look, that was fantastic. I got to spend lots of time with, with my kids as they were growing up. Um, and there I met, at the bank I met um, Paul, who's my business partner. Mm-hmm. And, and t- so we, we, we left the investment bank during the GFC. Um, the world was imploding. It was, it was a scary time, right? The, um, we turn up at work every day and another investment bank or large corporate was, was, you know, collapsing and the share prices were tanking and it was a scary time. And, you know, when we were thinking of setting up um, Pathfinder, um, most people were saying, you guys are insane. They don't, don't even think right. about you know, <laughs> And, and there, there was one entrepreneur who said to us, the, the worst of times is also the best of times for, for setting up a new business. Right. And, um, it's interesting though as well just to highlight like I remember those days as well I was working as a lawyer in Tokyo at that time and when Lehman Brothers fell over and everyone was like oh oh my goodness <laughs> like because yeah. it, it's now long enough ago where some people listening you know who are younger than us it will be like a distant memory rather than a front page headline this this thing is happening um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, look, there, there are there are plenty of people in financial markets who have only ever worked for, through a bull market, a market going upwards. Um, and you know, you need those crises. You need the um, you need to live through the tech crisis of two thousand and the Russian crisis and the GFC to really understand. You know, um, the toughest time for decision making is in the hard times. Mm. So, do you remember a moment when you looked at each other and said, "We're going to push the button. Let's do this thing." Like, was it a, a moment or, yeah, how did that happen? Well, that, that kind of happened because um, Pathfinder was something we were, we were actually building the idea for for the bank to expand its business in New Zealand. And okay. um, and I think we realised there was an opportunity for us when, during the GFC, the head office in Europe was not investing any new capital in any satellite countries around the world in new ventures. So we knew this idea we had was never going to come to fruition. Um, so we just put our hands up and said... Um, you know, for us, it was kind of like, oh, my God, all the planets have aligned. We've got a, um, a business idea, some clients, a product, um, you know, let's do it ourselves. And, and, you know, they very generously let us let us leave with the IP for the, um, for the business. Um, so we left and, and set up Pathfinder. We launched our first ethical fund in 2010, which is a global water fund. And that was kind of interesting because we, we really believed in the investment thesis, which was around um, climate change, industrialization and emerging markets, urbanization and feeding world populations and the need for water. Mm-hmm. And people said, you guys are mad. You know, this is a, you're trying to market an ethical fund and you're talking about climate change. No one's interested in that. And, and to be fair, they were kind of right because no one was really investing in it. We raised we raised some money, but not vast amounts of money. And it was a struggle in the early years um, convincing people it was a good idea until the performance from the fund was good and people started investing in it, not because they believed in the ethical side of it necessarily, um, but because they liked talking about water and they liked the returns from mm-hmm. the fund. 
And then sort of fast tracking a few more years, um, if you think about 2015, 2016, that was around the time that people started realizing they had landmines and cluster munitions in their KiwiSaver. Um, and there was an awakening, I think, of, of people um, taking a bit more interest in, in what their money was invested in. Um, and, I, and I think that was, you know, for me, it was, it was you know, people are starting to join the dots of, um, I like to think of, you know, there are three ways that people can influence the world. And um, it, it can be how you spend your time. You can mentor, you can give time to charity. It can be how you spend your money. Everyone gets um, conscious um, consumption and, and their spending choices have an impact on the world. Um, but the third one, which is what I'm really focused on, is how we invest our money and how we invest our money, not just um, so much what we avoid investing in, so just avoiding tobacco, avoiding la um, landmines um, is obviously important, but for me, what you focus the investment into right. um, has a real impact, has a real impact on the world. So what you're talking about is rather than just negatively screening, like we don't go here, you're positively engaging or investing, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, our... our Focus, for example, what we're looking for is the intersection between, if you think about global long-term trends and what's going to make money for investors long-term, because, you know, we're people saving, so we're here to make money in the best possible returns we can, find the intersection between those global long-term themes and what is sustainable for the planet. And it's that intersection that we're really interested in. And that's things like water and forestry, renewable energy, um, and also data. We're really big on data centers at the moment, particularly ones, well, only ones, that also develop their own or produce their own renewable energy sources because data storage is, is very, very energy intensive. Mm. Um, but that, that's our focus is, is positive, positive investment. Yeah, no, that's great. And can you just describe why do you think that attitudes have changed? You know, thinking back to 2008 or 2009, you know, you're just getting started and you come out with a new fund and the reaction isn't, you know, it's not, when I look at today, 2020, as we're recording this, there's been a very big shift in, from my perspective, around the term impact investing. And you're seeing a lot more engagement. People are actually getting what this is. And from, from my perspective, um, as you know, I'm a lawyer active in this space. So I think the explanation is people are realizing that they are in control of their funds and one of the uses of those could be to invest at an interest rate in a bank where the profits go back to Australia, <laughs> or they could use the same amounts of money and invest over here in actually potentially doing good through that investment. But can you, from your perspective, what are you seeing or, or what do you think is changing? Um, look, I, I, there's a few things changing. What, one thing that changes is social values. So, um, Values are not fixed, and, and social values change over time. If, if the year I was born, 1967, um, was the year the Supreme Court in the US um, announced that laws against interracial marriage were illegal. So in the year I was born, you know, there were laws in some states in the US banning interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. um, we've moved a long, long, long way during my lifetime from there. Um, and in the last decade that, that we've been running Pathfinder, um, you know, what I'm really excited about is just continually pushing the boundaries on ethical investment. So um, we launched a KiwiSaver product last year um, and we've embedded um, animal exploitation considerations in there. 
Um, so we launched a vegan fund, or our water fund, we turned into a vegan fund in um, 2018. And a lot of people laughed at us, but that was kind of going into a new boundary and the world was moving in that direction. Like no one laughs at us now for, for doing that. And um, so we, we had this vision of a um, KiwiSaver run on social, a social enterprise model for a number of years. And, and I suppose we're the, you know, look, if I, if I share with you, and I know you're, you're big on impact investing and social enterprise, you know, when, when I think about social enterprise, just for, for the listeners, you know, what we're talking about is you're a company and you have a profit motive, but you also have a social or environmental cause or purpose that you're um, working towards helping solve. Mm-hmm. And the problem that I had been, work, you know, grappling with for a number of years, and I knew I'd find a solution to help with it was funding of small charities in New Zealand. So Men's Health Trust, for example, wonderful cause, and we do some great programs. We've got a program in South Auckland called Checkmates PI, working with um, the Pacific Islands community, and it's fantastic. And, the, and a project like that, you can get funding for. You want laptops for your office, you can get funding for, but just um, paying the office rent, paying the electricity, paying the staff salaries, knowing you're gonna start every year with some money, is really hard to get funding for. And so it's the, this idea of trying to help generate for impactful charities, generate long-term sustainable passive income streams that can be relied on year after year. So you start the year and you know there's something in the bank. And that's what we're trying to solve through our KiwiSaver. So when I think about social enterprise, you know, we spent a lot of time thinking about it and came up with sort of three things that we had to solve for. Firstly, you've got to identify an issue you care about and you want to solve. And for us, that is um, providing this passive income for impactful charities in New Zealand. Um, Secondly, the solution you come up with has to scale with your business. So if you give $1,000 a year to charity, if your business doubles and you're still giving $1,000, that to me is not scaling. What you need to scale, if your business doubles in size, your solution has to double in size. So that, that told me we need to link our solution to income, our revenue stream. And the third thing is, if you're a social enterprise, the solution you come up with has to cause you pain as a business. And so it has to be meaningful. So we're giving a percentage of our management fee to charity. We can give 2 or 3% and that would be a great marketing story. We give 20%. And 20% as a business, knowing you start the year, 20% of your revenue is going to charity um, is scary, frankly. But the, you know, how do we arrive at 20%? We kind of reverse engineered it. We said, okay, um, you know, let's think about... Forest and Bird or Men's Health Trust or Breast Cancer Cure or Garden to Table, these fantastic charities we work with. Yeah. Um, we want to give $50,000 a year to each of the charities. How many people do we think we can get? We think we can get 1,000 people. So when people join us, they tick one of our charities and, and 20% of fees will go to that charity. Um, so 1,000 people is $50,000 a year. How much of our revenue do we have to give for that equation to work? It's 20% of our revenue. So we kind of reverse engineered it that way. I'm going 20%, wow, that's scary. But look, the, the way we've structured it is we charge the average fee of all Kiwi savers in the market. I don't want anyone saying to me, all you've done is ramp your fee up and then given some to charity. Because what we're actually doing is we charge the average fee, which we think is a very fair fee to charge. And then we give 20% to charity. So it's my shareholders, it's myself and my shareholders that this um, cost is coming from. Our investors who join our, join Care Saver, 
they choose one of the charities. 20% of their fees go to it, but the cost is ours. So we're engaging people in the KiwiSaver by getting them to um, help support these charities, but it's us that's actually bearing the cost of the um, donation. And so that's a kind of social enterprise model. And then on top of that, we're really focused on how do we invest people's money in a positive way to, um, um, you know, to benefit planet and yeah. people. Well, that's what I'd really be keen to hear a little bit more on because I, I get the, the charity aspect of it and I do a lot with charities. So that's, that's wonderful. It's really good. But I'm also, for me, social enterprise, the key part of it is that the business model itself is yep. advancing something that's worth doing. So, um, for example, if there was an unnamed um, maker of uh, liquid sugar <laughs> and it gave some of its profits to charity, that's, that's kind of nice, but ultimately it's making a product which is detrimental to the health of the people, yeah. you know? And so it's kind of at odds with this concept. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm just keen to drill down a little bit on how you go through the process of making a decision about what you invest in. Um, and also I'm keen because it sounds like several times you've come out with things and people have kind of said, what are you doing? It must be part of the test is that the first reaction is, what are you doing in a way? <laughs> like, is that part of it? Or, or how would you go about explaining what you decide to invest in? And I'm um, particularly interested because of your background and securitization and global financial crisis and all of the negative associations with funding and, and what people invested in and, you know, mortgages that were crazy and, and all of that. And yeah, I'm just keen for your perspective on that. Okay. Um, right. You're bringing a lot of strands together here. Oh, look, I, I suppose what, one way to, to think about it is, is re-engineering how a business functions. So, the the common structure of a business at the moment is you have your business and then corporate social responsibility is a department, often a subset of the marketing, which kind of sits outside your business and, and that will do good, but it's also really a marketing function. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would challenge that and say, actually, forget that model. What you want is a business and at the core of the business is purpose and values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, forget about corporate social responsibility out the side, embed it in the, in the center of your business and make it, um, you know, so as a fund manager, it's how we run our business, the inputs into our business, how we treat our staff, um, as well as how we select our investments. I mean, everything has to be, has to be aligned on that. And, you know, so we, we, how, do we, how do we choose businesses? Um, you know, tobacco, for example, when, we, you know, a lot of people will say, I don't care what I invest in as long as it makes money. Well, tobacco, if you use it as the manufacturer recommends, people will die. Does that, how do you feel about that? A lot of people would say, I'm okay with that. It's legal. And the test is, is it legal? And then again, it, it's, you know, this continuum of how does business operate? At one end, you've got Milton Friedman saying the business of business is business, i.e. maximise profit for shareholders. Mm pay dividends to shareholders, shareholders can decide, do I want to give it to charity? Do I want to spend it? What do I want to do with it? But the company itself should have no ethics. And then at the other extreme, you've got people like Larry Fink from BlackRock, you know, the largest asset manager in the world. You've got, um, you know, the founder of Patagonia, and you've got them saying business has to serve a social purpose and it has to look after stakeholders um, other than just shareholders. It has to look after suppliers and employees and consumers and communities. And, and Patagonia would go further and say, your number one stakeholder, stakeholder is the planet. 
And so you've got the, these different business models and, and we're attracted by businesses that have that purpose, yeah. that um, are offering products that are solutions for consumers, but are also mindful of the long-term impacts, whether it's climate change or health and safety um, or the impact on communities. But we're interested in companies and we think they make better long-term financial returns. Mm. So um, a company that looks after its staff, the staff will be more engaged and more productive. You will make more money. And there's a lot of academic research that companies that are higher on environmental and social metrics in down markets, like we had earlier this year in March, in down markets, their share prices don't fall as much. They're more resilient companies. Yeah. Um, so there's both financial and, um, you know, ethical reasons why you want to do this. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And it, it, those names that you just threw out, those are the exact same examples I often give, which is the Milton Friedman over here, you know, the shareholders who we're accountable to, but then the change with Larry Fink. And then the other one that I usually give is Dr. Seuss's The Lorax, you know, <laughs> that, that at this end, it's like, think of the trees and, and, and have this bigger perspective. Um, so for your business itself, how do you make sure that the purpose and the mission are enshrined in what you do? It, obviously, it seems like it's part of the culture of what you're doing. You're, you and your co-founder have, have a culture of this, and I imagine it kind of then flows out from that. But is there any tips, particularly thinking of listeners, like how do you go about enshrining purpose and mission in, a, in an entity or a company where it traditionally wouldn't be part of the, the ethos? Yeah. Um, Look, what, what is a business? A business is essentially a collection of people that are, that are working on a common purpose. And that purpose can be to maximise money for shareholders. That purpose can be a, a greater purpose around um, serving customers and, and providing benefits to the wider community and, and the planet. You know, and it's essentially, it's about the people in the business um, having that common purpose, understanding what it is and, and sharing what it is. And, you know, with, with Pathfinder, um, Paul and I, you know, we had this idea for CareSaver, KiwiSaver for, for a while, and we thought, God, to get this launched, we're going to need a bit more um, bit more resource. And so we actually teamed up with, um, we sold half our business to Alvarium, and which is a um, half a global asset manager, a $25 billion global asset manager, and half um, um, Ben Goff, who's the wealthy um, South Island family. And we've managed money for Ben for a number of years on environmental and social principles, and we knew he would be a good fit for us. But... With, with them, we essentially agreed a deal to sell them half of Pathfinder to them to, to build CareSaver um, without telling them the whole story. And then the day before we signed, we signed the deal, we said, okay, one last presentation. Here's the plan of what we've got. This KiwiSaver, it's going to invest ethically. It's also going to give 20% of revenue to charity. We're not here to maximise money for shareholders. If you think this is a dumb idea, please don't do the deal with us, but this is, this is what we're about. And... Um, Luckily for us, I, I suspected they'd love it. You know, they just said, genius idea, love this idea, let's, let's do it. And, um, you know, so again, it's about the people. It's about the people buying into the, into the purpose, into the mission of what you're trying to achieve. Mm. So just practically speaking, do you have like a mission statement, like three bullet points or something, or how do you convey that mission out? How do we convey it out? We have, um, we have an ethical investment policy, which is um, which sounds very formal, and, and it, it kind of is. But there's a lot of there's a lot of issues you need to think through, which are um, you know related to animals, environment, communities. Um, but yeah, we distill it down to you can distill it down to three bullet points, which are um, essentially 
you know, all our team understands we're here to make money for people's environment. We're all sorry for people's <laughs> for people's um, future and their retirement, um, but we're also going to do it ethically. And then the, the the ethical policy described. So we're very, you know, the, the difficulty is as a fund manager, you have one fund, or you know, we have conservative balance and growth funds, but um, that is one value set within there. And so when I talk about this policy, it's really important to us that people understand if there's something they care about, like climate change, um, or not investing in gambling or focusing investment into social issues, it's important for us that they understand exactly how we invest. So we try and disclose that as fully as possible. Because when you ask someone, what are your values? How do you want to invest? Um, a thousand people will have a thousand different answers. Mm. And so there's always that sort of element of compromise. But for us, it's about disclosure. It's making sure people understand exactly what we stand for. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me because as well that you've been able to find a partner to come in and that gets what you're talking about. Because this is often, I see the issue is people, the original founders set things up, but then eventually sell out some or all of the entity and then it can kind of go off track. <laughs> so it's about finding aligned investors, isn't it? And making them understand the story and being open about it and then go on the journey together rather than, well, you know, we're checking out now and, and rewrite the policy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I totally agree. It's um, um, we're on a mission, and and we're taking people along with us that that believe in us. So um, exciting. Yeah, no, that's good. So, what does the future hold? Like this whole area is exploding from my perspective of impact investing. Um, do you see? Yeah, have you got any things that maybe you can or can't share? But you know, where where is the future? Are you? Um, yeah, which direction are you headed? Yep, no, impact investing, um, which just for your listeners is slightly different to um, just investing with environmental and social metrics in mind. It's also making impactful investments where you can measure the either the education outcome or the um, social outcome from it. Um, so within within our KiwiSafe, we've recently made a couple of really exciting private investments. Um, one is in Rua Bioscience, which is a medical marijuana company, and the other is in Sharesies, which is a platform making... Um, you know, improving financial literacy and the availability of, of financial investment products. Yeah. Um, so we've moved into, into into that space. Impact investing, you know, sort of more targeted um, investments around, you know, social issues or helping with educational housing or a bunch of things, you know, that's exciting as well. And, and I'd expect over time um, you'll see us moving into that space. Can't say too much at the moment, but yeah, we're, we're working on things in the background, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Well, the more people that are looking at it, the better, I think, and the more conversations. One of my hopes for the podcast is that it opens up people's ears to different ways of doing things and different conceptions. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm personally involved a bit with impact investing because I'm the chair of a company called Community Finance. And so we've just finished raising $15 million for social housing. So it's this conception of, you can invest and get a return or you can invest and actually know that there's housing being built for people who would not have houses. So it's yeah. kind of a quite exciting area to be involved in. And I'm sure you feel it too, you know, that actually you're doing some good through your knowledge and, and through your, um, through the business. Yeah, absolutely. And look, it comes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier, how as individuals, sometimes we can feel powerless, but as individuals, we can actually make a change either through how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we invest our money. And I think as, as, as KiwiSaver investors in particular, you know, it doesn't matter whether you have $1,000 in KiwiSaver or 100000 
you're part of the $60 billion that New Zealanders have in KiwiSaver. Mm. As a country, how do we want that invested? We should be using that for impact and, and everyone should have um, some, you know, some choice in that and, and the impact they want the KiwiSaver to have. Mm. Well, that's, that's the other thing I'd love about this podcast is we're recording a moment in time, June 2020, and hopefully in a few decades, we'll listen back and be like, wow, they, you know, so much has changed. <laughs> that's my dream, actually, <laughs> that I'll listen back to some of these interviews and go, wow, that, they were just, they didn't know what was coming in a positive way. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, particularly on a Friday afternoon. Um, and I just want to say thank you. What we'll do is we'll put some links in the show notes. So if people are interested, they can go and click and find out more. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, really interesting to hear about your life. Just the even back to the very beginning and, you know, some of your um, trips through the Middle East and, you know, the perspective that that gave you. But then I really appreciated your honesty talking about mental health and looking after ourselves, because I think that's something that we don't talk enough about in New Zealand. And so I really appreciate that that we went there. <laughs> I think that's really positive. Um, and then just hearing about what you're doing now with Pathfinder, I think it's, um, yeah, it's really an example to me of the future of business. Um, it's not a, this is how we always used to do it. It's more, this is where we're headed. And um, that's really a generative conversation rather than extractive. So thank you cool. so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Look, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for asking me. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with John. For me, there were several things that stood out. I particularly appreciated his honesty in describing his journey and the lessons that we can learn as men to reach out to each other and share what we're actually going through. If you enjoyed this, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because there's more than 180 there now. Until next time!